So Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, Pierre comes back. He missed last week and he goes, well, you guys didn't get very far. And I'm like, we got exactly where we were supposed to. And he said, well, when are we going to be crossing the Red Sea? I said, I don't know, because I don't know if we're going to even have that in this story. We're, no, I'm kidding. Yeah, we're going to get there. He was doubting it. He's like, you have a version where they don't actually make it across the Red Sea? No, we're going we're gonna to get there. But all on the Lord's timing, right? But we are going to get a good way into chapter 14. And next week, we will finish chapter 14 and chapter 15, and we will cross the Red Sea. So as we are heading into this tonight, we are going to learn the very nature of God that he strategizes as a leader and in war or as a warrior. So um, what we've been discussing, though, in this chapter 13 is when they came across, they came out of Egypt that they didn't just come randomly or haphazardly, that there was a plan, there was a program, and, um, and there was definitely a, a specific purpose. And we saw there in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13 that once they were out of bondage, they were to put God first, and God said to give them to the first of their, uh, the animals and even donkeys, um, and uh, the unclean animals. And uh, then also, the second step is out of bondage, no leaven at all. This is where they did have some leaven when they weren't supposed to. They didn't understand. God just reiterated it and explained that. And then the third step was keeping it daily in front of you. And we looked at the phylacteries. And in the phylacteries, do, do we need to set up one more table or are we good just sitting in a chair? Okay, we used to not even have a table. Just pretend we're back in the old days without a table. Isn't it funny when we never have tables, nobody misses a table? But once we get a table, we've got to have a table. And, and this is totally my fault. I actually took down a table because we haven't had this many people coming. <laughs> so I actually took down a table. David had them all set up, and I said, Dave, you're wrong, and uh, we need to put some of these tables away. And Dave is giving me the, the stink eye now going, Pastor, you do your job and I'll do my job. So anyway, I, I, I like this. We're all cuddled in close together. This is, this is nice. And it's good to see all of you. And especially, you know, Amy, it's good to see you, sis. So we are... Um, Last week, I was trying to remember, and I was having a senior moment, what scriptures go into the phylacteries, the boxes on the back of the hand or the forehead. You know, it doesn't say to do this, but this is how the Jews interpreted it in time, mostly after they came back after the Babylonian period and then up to the time of Christ. Remember, they created a Judaism that was cult. The time it evolved to the time of Jesus, Jesus says, you guys who are leading this thing, you Pharisees and Sadducees, you're sons of Satan. And those who listen to you and follow you, you make them twice the sons of hell as yourself. Your God is the devil. <laughs> yeah, 
He had some pretty strong things to say about their Judaism. So when we look, go to Israel today and we see a lot of the Judaism of the various hats or dresses or how they live. And it's, this is not in the Bible. And they have their various rabbis they like, which often these rabbis very much hated each other and contradicted each other and went to war with each other. And now you got today thousand, probably over a thousand various Jewish sects that all interpret things a little differently. And when it comes to phylacteries, they do it a little differently. But it wasn't just Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 through 9. I know that is the verse that they put in the mezuzahs, uh, those little things on the houses. But the phylacteries that we talked about last week, and if you're here getting freaked out going, what's this? I've, I've been a Christian 30 years. I don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a thing in Judaism that they practiced where God said, I want the word of God to be on the back of your hand and on your forehead, so it will always be in your mouth. That was really what he was saying. So actually getting leather boxes and straps and putting it on your head and so forth, I, I don't think the Lord ever meant that. But if he did, uh, it could have been, but it never is said in the Bible. But there were other scriptures that they put in these phylacteries. Exodus chapter 13, verse 1 through 10. Exodus chapter 13, verses 11 through 16. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 9. And Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 21. All of these scriptures I mentioned last week, but I didn't say for sure whether they were in the phylacteries. And evidently they, they are. And so we pick up today and, and we are going to see within the nature of God, he's, his strategies, and he is a leader. In verse 17 and 18 tonight we pick up, then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way out of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by another way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in an orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. So if you looked at a map, you would see that there was a route out of Egypt and it just followed the Mediterranean Sea all the way around. Well, first the, uh, the, the Gulf of Suez and then eventually past the Gulf of Suez, uh, the Mediterranean Sea, all the way down to Israel. And on that route, the ships came in and so forth, but also the farmers, they had large... Uh, cities there that they did trading. So all the way down, they would have had food, they would have had water, they would have had access to everything. But on that road called the, the Via Mara, which is the way of the sea, or the Mares, the Via Mares, the, the way of the sea, every so often there were Egyptian outposts with soldiers who were sort of the police force and monitored that whole area. So in God's way of thinking, he's saying they're going to come, they're going to be done with Egypt, but then they're going to immediately have to fight the various outposts along the way to get to the promised land. Now that via Maris, had they gone that way, many scholars even looking at it with two or three million people that route would have only taken about 11 days. But God said, 
you guys will see war and you'll freak out and it won't be healthy for you. You'll just want to turn back and go back to Egypt. So I'm going to take you into the wilderness. And boy, we know about this wilderness, don't we? It really was a desert with no water and uh, just as barren as deserts can be. But God said, that's the way I'm going to lead them. Not the simple northern quick pass, the, the northern route that was so quick, but another route that would take them eventually 40 years. Shouldn't have taken them that long at all. So God led them a less direct route. And uh, why? He says, because they won't be able to handle the easy route. They need a, a different route that doesn't have immediate war, but also is more difficult. Now, we know really the reason why. We learn it later in Deuteronomy 8, verse 2 through 3. You guys know that passage, right? In Deuteronomy 8, verse 2 and 3. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you, to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man shall live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So there was two sides of the coin. The one side of the coin is that they, they would not be able to handle the various skirmishes on that northern via Maris, easier route. They, they couldn't handle the immediate war that would come out of that route. But also he took them into the wilderness because he knew it would be a growing time inwardly, spiritually. It would be a place where they had have to learn to totally trust in the Lord. No water, no food, God would have to feed them. God would have to give them to drink. And in learning to live through God's hand, it, they would learn the most spiritual, important spiritual principle. And that is, man is not here to exist on earth. We are here to live for God and his purposes and we are daily fed his manna, right? The manna of God's word. Now, as we go through the New Testament, there's continuously two different words. One is logos, the written word, but then the word rhema. And in Jesus, in Matthew, when he quotes, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, it's rhema. Rhema is the word that God gives you today in season. That's how Jesus lived. In Isaiah 50, verse 4 and 5, Jesus, speaking of what it would be like one day when he was on earth 750 years in advance in the book of Isaiah 50, he says, The Lord God, that returning to his Father, has awakened me morning by morning. He quickens my ear to hear as a learner, or in the Greek Septuagint, the word disciple, that I might have a word to sustain him in the weary in the day. I was not rebellious, nor did I turn right back. Then the next verse says, I gave my beard to them who plucked it out, and so forth. But Jesus, day by day, would get up and get the manna from the Father. 
day by day he would get up and, and, and receive that word. And then he would take that word. It would encourage his soul, strengthen his heart. But then he would take that word, that manna, and he would feed others with it through the weary. The weary in the day, he would take it and feed it. And, and so that, that's the pattern. And so if we're not having that pattern, then we're not walking as Christians. We're, we are Christians, we believe in the Lord, but not walking as Jesus would walk and being fruitful as the Lord would have us. So he said, man, I just took you through a place where you would humble, be humbled, broken, I love where Jesus says, you know, fall on the rock and be broken, lest that rock falls on you and crushes you to powder because of your pride and your arrogance and your independent spirit from God. We, we really do need him. So interesting, because the children of Israel are going to be heading out into the wilderness, scratching their heads going, why are we going this way? Now, they had no idea that God was keeping them from destruction. They wouldn't have made it the easy way. They wouldn't have made it the northern past the Via Maris. It reminds me of a passage in, we know, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 well, right? That God doesn't give us more than we can handle, right? He's gracious to us. And he makes a way of escape. He doesn't give something that will destroy us. He, he gives us just enough to bend us, to break us, to humble us, to shake us, but not, he won't, we wouldn't allow something to come into our life that would destroy us. And this is exactly why he led them the way he did. Now, verse 19, real quick uh, cleanup note. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under Saul in a moth, saying, God will surely visit you, and you will carry my bones from here with you. So for 430 years, um, from tradition, it says that there was a basically a monument that held Joseph's bones in it. It was above ground. People could see it. And the whole time, it was a witness, and I wonder if they even had these words written on it, as an encouragement to the children of Israel God will one day visit you and you will be leaving this place. You will be going into the promised land. And so when that day comes, whenever it comes, I don't think Joseph knew it was going to be over 400 years, but take my bones with you. And it seems like the children of Israel, they were all in a rush to get out uh, after the Passover and uh, the firstborn dies and they're heading out. But Moses, whether he looks at it going, Nobody's getting that? <laughs> I'm getting that. It sounds like Moses did the cleanup operation and made sure that Joseph Bones made it uh, on this trip as well. Of course, it would be a long time still before Joseph's bones would make it into the promised land, right? There, he's gonna, his bones are going to be traveling through the desert uh, for the next 40 years. Now, and... and um, Actually, longer than that, but in Exodus chapter 13, now verse 20 and 22. So they took their journey from Sukkoth and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by the way in the pillar of cloud to lead them 
uh, the way by night and the pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. And he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Now we're going to be told in this chapter and the next a bunch of different names. We do not know the locations of these names today. There's people that have, you know, looked at various paths and tried to figure out where, because when you look at the Red Sea, it's a, it's a very big place and it has a couple different fingers, and it, it's hard to know exactly where, and my entire Christian, I'm going back to when I was, even before a teenager, there was always some guy coming out as a guest speaker, I found it, I know where it's at, you know, my whole life, and they're still doing it today. You go on YouTube, and there's one guy, I found my, Mount Sinai, and, you know, I found, you know, whatever, Moses' sandal there, and, you know, whatever they come up with. I, and I really don't think it's, it's essential, um, but it is, it's always interesting. But, um, again, it's, it's not the point. We don't know today how they exited Egypt and where they went, and we don't know where Migdal and Pyarihoth and all these different places that are going to mention. We don't know where they're at today. But, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to speculate. But I don't speculate. So they, as we went on there, the Lord um, had with them a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And of course, this was, first of all, just for them to, to know God's with them. There's a, there's a supernatural fire in the sky. There's a supernatural cloud system in the sky. And I might just add, on a practical note, it was probably the therm, thermostat, right? It was probably a temperature gauge. Because those deserts out there can get 120 degrees. But I think that cloud system made it a nice, you know, whatever, 72. I don't know what it was. Degrees. And then at night, have you ever been in the desert? Whew, you can freeze to get that in the middle of the night in the desert. And again, you got that nice fire burning up there, um, keeping the, the temperature probably very comfortable uh, for them. But also, it was, it was a reminder to them that God is watching over them day and night. In Psalms 105, 39, it says, He spread a cloud for a covering and a fire to give them light in the night. In Psalms 84, 11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So as they looked at that and, and thought about the clouds and the light, they, they saw it as God's goodness, God's glory, God's favor, God's blessings, God's joy uh, over them. I just might make a quick note. If you want to read Ezekiel 10, is when this presence left the temple. Um, and it did eventually leave, although it says here uh, in verse 22, God did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And, and I, it's an important note, because as we go on, um, there's a lot of points that a man would have thrown away another man. <laughs> there would have been a point out in that desert listening to these guys murmur and complain and disobey God with idolatry and all kinds of stuff where one man might have said to another man, I'm done, 
I'm getting out of here. You're on your own. I'm not going to put up with this anymore. That's what men do to men, right? But no matter how horrible these guys were, and they were horrible, um, we see that God did not withdraw his presence from them no matter what. Well, chapter 14, verse 1. So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pirihoth between Migdal and the sea, opposite of Belzephon. You shall camp before it by the sea, and Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land, and the wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army. Then the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord, and they did so. So if you want, this is another final plague. I don't think so. Uh, but their children, most of these warriors just lost their firstborn son uh, a day or a week earlier. We don't know exactly how much time has lapsed here. But um, okay, we were going to head this regular route that we have a pretty good idea. Nope, we're not going that way. We're going out in the desert. And your first place is you're going to go to a closed out location. You're going to rock and the Egyptians are going to immediately know you're going to a dead end. You've got a big cliff system of uh, Migdal on one side and Piharihoth on the other side and the Red Sea before you. And, and as, as they start heading into this place, they're completely blocked off, completely trapped. And God told Moses, he didn't tell Moses to tell the children of Israel, so the children of Israel didn't know. But God mentions to, to Moses saying, I'm laying a trap for Pharaoh because he's going to say they're trapped and his heart is going to be hardened and he's going to say, let's go after them and kill them and pursue them. So that's exactly what happened. Look in verse 5. So now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, now why have we done this? Why have we let Israel go from serving us? Oh my gosh, just look at the insanity here, people. Do you, do you understand when you say no to God, you also say no to sanity eventually. I, you know, just like today. I mean, I'm just sitting there listening, going, is this a Saturday night skit? <laughs> you know? Okay, everybody who has bad credit is going to get the best interest on buying a home. Everybody with good credit, you're going to get horrible rates because that's equity. That's fair. Okay. And I'm going to order everybody who has really horrible employees to get a raise and to get, the, and to get a, a promotion. And everybody who shows up on time and works real hard, they should get fired. And all college students who do really great should get kicked out of school. And everybody who's getting an F, give them another scholarship. I mean, it's so insane. Their brains are just gone. 
Sorry, sorry, I shouldn't mention these, these new things. Pierre has not watched the news in 25 years. So, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay, come out. There we go. He's, he's going to survive. He's just going to help you. Oh, there, a cough drop. I don't know. <clears throat> it's okay. Uh, we're, we're, I'm, I'm used to going to the old folks' home. I'm, I hear this kind of stuff all the time. The old 90-year-old guy spattering. spattering. Okay, we're back here now. So, why? Why did we let them go to begin with? Do you remember any plagues? Do you remember your firstborn children of animals and people dying? Do you, do you remember that? It's just like, yeah, we should have never let these guys go. So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. And he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. They're pulling out all the ammunition they have, all the tanks they have, everything is going. And the Lord hardened his heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them. All the horses of the chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen, his army, overtook them camping by the sea beside Pyarihoth and before Bel-Zephon. So what's happening here? Pharaoh's mind is just blown. Why did we let him go? Let's go kill them. So he's getting his elite soldiers with his elite chariots. What's he going to find? A complete unarmed group of people. They don't have a sword or a spear or a shield. They're going to be going into where there's children and women and these chariots have all these spikes on the wheels and these bunch of horses and they're just going 35, 40 miles an hour. You have one guy riding the, driving the chariot and you have two guys on each side just with big swords and spears just whacking people, just literally a holocaust. A big giant bloodbath is the way they were picturing in their minds. These people couldn't defend themselves. There, there, there was going to be no resistance. There was no, nobody's going to be shooting an arrow at them or throwing a spear at them. They were just going to commit an out-and-out bloodbath, an out-and-out um, just massacre, a holocaust. Israel, in their history, has been through many, many holocausts. We know about the one during World War II, but the Bible has several of them mentioned, but even in history, there's others that are mentioned. So just to make an important note here, you say, okay, Satan's lost the battle. They're out of Egypt. They're out of bondage. Satan says, well, lost that one. Forget about those guys. I'll go concentrate on some other group. Understand, just because a person gets born again doesn't mean Satan stops messing with them. He's like, I'm still your enemy and I hate you. I can't bring you back into Egypt into bondage as you once were. But he's still out to still kill and destroy. 
He's still trying to figure out as a Christian some way to tempt you and lure you back into some form of some kind of bondage. Remember in Matthew 13, Jesus taught us about the seed that goes into the various soils, right? And these are believers. It goes into the one soil that's thin. And it says they they had no root in themselves. They were new Christians. They were maybe Christians that just never really took their Christianity serious as they should and hadn't grown deeper in the Lord. And it says when temptation and persecution comes, they wither up and they die. And then there's the seed that falls amongst the uh, weeds. And again, this is the deception of riches, cares of this life, and the, and the desire for other things that come in and, and begin to choke it out. And it doesn't bear fruit. So that's his plan. They're out of bondage, but I'll keep them from bearing fruit. I'll try to choke them out with the lust over riches, or I'll try to destroy them through trials and war and persecution. Whatever way that they don't have a good and noble heart to grow in the Lord. So Satan is still very active trying to destroy them. He couldn't keep them in bondage, so let's just go cut them to smithereens till everybody's cut in half and blood is everywhere. And it's just a big giant meat market for us with all our 600 choice chariots plus all the other chariots. We'll just go in there, hundreds of us, just go in there chopping these guys up. They have no way to protect themselves. But it says an interesting way in the New King James. It says the children of Israel went out with boldness. In the old King James, it says this, they went out with a high hand. That's better. That's a better translation. Later in 1 Kings 11, verse 26 and 27, the same two words that are put together, high hand, are translated rebel, to rebel. So when they come out of Egypt, those first few days, they were full of of. Like, why were we ever slaves? Of course we're free. No man should have kept us in slavery. They came out with this angry, rebellious, strong warrior heart. That's the idea. It's not something to scold them over. It's something to rejoice in. They're no longer being the the, the compliant slave that can be mistreated by the Egyptians. They're coming out of that point of of being willing to be a slave and willing to be uh, mistreated that way. And it lasted all of a couple of minutes. I'm glad at least it lasted a couple of minutes. But notice in verse 10 what happened, verse 10 through 12, notice. So when Pharaoh drew near and the children of Israel lifted their eyes and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Again, rejoice. When they saw it, They got afraid and they did the right thing, didn't they? They cried out to the Lord. And then in the very next breath, look at verse 11. They said to Moses, (laughs) because there's no graves in Egypt, have you taken away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone that we may serve these Egyptians? For it would 
have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Whoa. When people aren't walking by faith, they sure get nasty. (laughs) They can sure get fleshly. And in their fleshliness, they can say some really ugly, hurtful things. And boy, these guys let Moses have it. Towards God, help us. We trust in you, Lord. There's Moses. You should have left us in Egypt. We were doing great. Oh, man. Short memories there. But let's just rejoice in the moment they cried out to God. Guys, understand, when we talk about crying out to God, it's not a small thing. God takes it to heart when we cry out to him, right? When we are humble or we're broken and we're difficult, you know, I go to here go to, with my grandkids and I hear one of them screaming. Me and Cheryl look at each other like, oh my goodness, should we call the ambulance? And my son and his wife are sitting there, they don't even listen to it because it's not the right scream, right? And then later there's a little scream, it doesn't sound that bad and they're like, oh my goodness, it wasn't, it was serious. God knows when we are having that cry out to him that is really saying we are afraid. We need your deliverance. Boy, there's so many scriptures on this. I just picked out a few out of Psalms 34, 17. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help and trouble. Psalms 46, one through three says, Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, though mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and it be troubled, though the mountains shake and is swelling. Psalm 50, verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. Psalm 56, 9, when I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. Psalm 145, 19. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and save them. So many precious places. God just says, take note. This is huge. When people cry out to me, they're my children. But then immediately they they get ugly towards Moses. They don't get ugly towards God, but they sure get ugly towards Moses. And it's just a, a note for all of us to remember and to learn and to remember that God has a plan in all our suffering, in all our trials, in all our pains. We, we remember well, right? James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience, but let it, let it happen. Let the patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Wow. Do you realize how far we can grow as Christians? In 1 Peter 1, verse 6 and 7, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if needs be, it's needed, right? If you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, purified through the fire process, may be found to the praise and the honor and the glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's all that matters, right? That moment when we're going to see Jesus, 
1 Timothy 4, verse 12 and 13 says, Beloved, do not think it strange conferring fiery trials, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Let us alone, they cried out, so we can serve the Egyptians. Boy, our mind can, can forget some of the most important things. We, I think it's in our human nature to look back in time at our childhood or being in high school or whatever and, and to forget some of the really bad, bad stuff and just remember the good stuff. Well, that can work against us because we can remember before we were in Christ and all the good old days but they weren't good old days. They were days of, of hardship and heartbreak and, and emptiness and crying out to God. And now as we're walking as Christians, familiarity can sort of breed contempt, can it? We, we're, it's so good in the promised land. It's so good having prayer to Jesus and the Bible and the word and the truth. And sometimes we can begin to look at it as not valuable anymore. It's just a thing sitting on the shelf. I, I sort of forgot about it. Rather than remembering how good it is to be in Christ. I think this is why communion is happening. For us to stop and remember that our salvation didn't come to us because of church or the Bible or because we're good people or God's a nice guy. It's because Jesus had to pay for the wickedness of our sin. Well, finishing up here in verse 13 and 14. Well, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Notice the three instructions of Moses. Number one, do not be afraid. Number two, stand still. Number three, see, observe the salvation of the Lord. Don't be afraid. You know, Moses, I think, didn't know how God was going to work this out. But I think Moses understood this was a testing of their faith. This was a purifying to see what was really in their hearts. And boy, we saw what was really in their hearts. <laughs> it was pretty ugly when they were in the fire, wasn't it? And that's what the fire does. It gets the gunk out. The gunk, the, the lesser precious metals rise to the top and then they get taken away. And then as the metal rehardens, it's a pure 14 karat gold to 18 karat gold or whatever. And so we saw their heart and what God did, but Moses knew God didn't bring us out of bondage, out of Egypt, then to let us die by the hand of Pharaoh. That's just not going to happen. God, God really did do this. It reminds me of Romans 8, where it's sort of the same logic in verse 31 and 32, where it says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not now freely give us all things? If God didn't hold back 
his son dying on the cross in our place for our sins, why now would he stop giving us grace? He didn't stop the grace when we were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. When we were weak, when we were enemies of God, when we were sinners, Romans 5 says, all those things were true of us. We were weak. In other words, we didn't hate sin and we didn't love God. We were weak spiritually. We were enemies of God. We, we hated the Bible. We hated people that walked like Christ did. Our, our fleshly nature rebelled against that. And he says, even in that state, Christ died for us. So how much more now, Romans 5 goes on to say, will God not save us on a continuous basis? So don't be afraid. God is for us. He's never going to be against us. He's on our side. And stand still. I think of that passage in Isaiah that says, be still and know that I am God. Be still, have a, have a heart full of peace. That's what he ends up saying at the end, right? Stand still, God's fighting for you, be at peace. I think it's the same idea, be still, but while you're still, what does it say? Take joy in all your trials, be at peace. I, I, I think that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were thrown into the fiery furnace, I don't think, they were, I don't think their blood pressure went up. I don't think they're like, oh my God, oh God, help us. Maybe we should bow down to it. Should we bow down and worship the idol? No, no, we're not. Oh, you know, I think they were just like, I'm going, I'm going to be with the Lord. <laughs> what did he say? Nebuchadnezzar said, can God save you from that fire? They said, can he? Yes. Is he going to? Don't know. But either way, we're not going to see your face and this pride and this arrogance like this anymore. And sure enough, when they came out of that fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar was a changed man. And I don't think Daniel was all, when they threw him into the, the den of lions, I don't think Daniel was freaking out. He just went down there and prayed and he was at peace. They were at peace. He slept on top of them. And... Uh, yeah, in, in the same way he's saying here, have faith, be at peace. Let your heart be at rest. And let's watch for the salvation of God. I love when God does that in various battles. Joshua, he does that. You know, one, I, I realize now when God confronted Joshua, remember Joshua's looking and trying to strategize how to destroy Jericho and God stands before him. And he goes, take off your sandal. This is holy ground. And, and he's like, who's the leader of this army? Who's the general? It's me. I'm the strategist. <laughs> I'm the warrior here, not you. Here's the plan. All they did was marched around and were at peace and rest, marching around Jericho. And then they saw the destruction of the enemy and the salvation of God. I think of Jehoshaphat, where the Syrians came up against him and, and God just said, stand still and just have the choirs go out and just worship me. Remember what happened? They thought they were fighting the enemy. They were fighting each other and they killed each other off. And the next day they came out and all the spoil from the other, other places they had uh, won against was there. They just took them a long time to get all the spoil <laughs> from off the bodies and out of the trenches of this 
of the Syrians there. I think of Asa in 2 Chronicles 14 through 15 there, and Josphat was 2 Chronicles 20, but 2 Chronicles there where the Ethiopians and the Lumums came up and they were a great multitude of millions of people and, and Asa had just started reestablishing the kingdom and righteousness and, and God came and won the battle. It was just a miraculous battle that God did. I love when God just says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. And of course, when we come with him at the end of the tribulation period on horses, we land on the Mount of Olives and get to do a Jerusalem tour why Jesus goes on over to the Kidron Valley, to the Valley of Megiddo, and uh, known as the Valley of Armageddon, and he finishes off killing all the armies of rebellion against him. They're actually fighting against the Antichrist, but then when they see Jesus, they're like, forget the Antichrist, and they start warring against Christ. And it says the blood rises. Sort of a picture here of what Pharaoh wanted to do. <laughs> He wanted the, the blood to run there between Migdal and Bayer-Rihoff. And uh, yet the Lord is the one who is going to do that to our enemies. We'll stand still and watch the salvation of God. And of course, I don't know if they understood when he says, you will see them no more forever. It's just, I don't know, it's just so humbling to me when I hear of people that died and did not know the Lord or were atheists. It just breaks my heart every time. I'm just like, no. I don't, you know, and then it reminds me in Ezekiel, it says, God does not rejoice in the death of the wicked. And I find myself not rejoicing in the death, even of the most wicked. Not that I don't want them to die. I do think that sometimes, and that's horrible of me, I know. But um, there's some wicked men that, that, uh, Boy, they are truly blaspheming God in many ways.